Chapter 15 Rupert and the Diggers At that very same moment, a little German sergeant named Rupert Fuchs was deep in a hell of his own manufacture. Rupert stood a shade under five feet, four inches in his socks, but he was that rare short man who never felt the need to compensate for his stature with braggadocia. His way had always been to calmly and patiently do his work, proving himself in his deeds, not his words. He was a Bavarian of the First Order, charming, with a warm, wry wit and ironic understanding of the ridiculousness of the world. He had been a civil engineer in real life, and he was a natural-born digger. His small, wiry frame belied a strong back that was built to move earth in vast quantity for hours on end. He was loved and respected by all the men who dug into the dirt beside him, under his command, as proud members of the Imperial German Army's First Guards Sapper Unit. When it all began, Rupert had been proud to lead them, and content with who he was. The course of the war changed all of that. When the battle lines formed in 1914, Rupert's platoon had been the catch-all earth movers of the company. He and his men had been sent in to do the soul-crushing job of digging trenches and dugouts, bunkers and fire bays. They filled sandbags and constructed breastworks, crafted sturdy fire steps out of wood, and laid mile upon mile of pine duckboards along the bottoms of the trenches to keep their German brethren from getting bogged down in the sticky French mud. At night, they crawled out into no man's land. Laden with heavy spools of barbed wire, they screwed metal stakes deep into the ground to create wicked entanglements. These barbed webs of metal would protect their fellows from their foes. The French and British, the Australians and New Zealanders, the Gurkhas and the Senegals, who fought their way across the fields to murder and maim them. Rupert had taken great pride in his personal war effort, even though he had been raised in the Quaker tradition. He had abandoned religion as he came to manhood. However, the attitudes of the Quaker meeting house, the goal of peace, the forswearing of violence, remained part of the lens he could not help but view the world through. That he was there, on the front lines, amidst the combat, yet partaking solely of defensive measures, soothed his conscience. He might be a tooth on a wheel of the war machine, but he was not a killing tooth. And for the first year and a half, he was able to use that as his island of sanity in the sea of horror. He could serve his country and his fellows with all his heart and still not be a killer of men. In fairness to Rupert, the British did it first. Before the Battle of the Somme, on the same July morning that killed John and other Tommy, and gave Kevin and Tommy and Harry Moss their violent, bloody baptisement, the British diggers had been at it full on. These boys from the coal mines of South Wales, who fought with their fists against the truncheons and rifles of Winston Churchill's soldiers and coppers during the mining strike in 1910, had been pressed into the British Army. They were now serving admirably as sappers in their own right, digging trenches and slinging wire as the opposite numbers to Rupert's gang. They were doing an exceptional job of it. Then some bright-bulb Oxfordian at General Headquarters 
whose passionate hobby was study of medieval warfare and the Crusades, came up with a lovely idea. If we imagine the German trenches as the battlements of a castle, could we not undermine them as Richard Lionheart did at Arca? The bright bulb asked. Of course, things went a bit willy-nilly at Arca when old Lionheart got his knickers in a twist and decapitated some 2,700 Muslim men, women and children in broad daylight in full view of the besieged city walls. Saladin responded by throwing a snit of his own and killing every Christian remaining in the city, then chucking their bodies from the battlements. But that was all somewhat beside the point. The point was, why not dig beneath the German trenches, fill it with TNT, and blow those jerry bastards right back to Berlin as the attack commenced? That seemed a reasonable proposition to the waxed mustaches and pomaded gentlemen of British GHQ. There was a great deal of hear-hearing when he made the proposition which made him blush with pride and really feel that he had made his stamp as one of the old beans. Thus, orders flew down from above to the effect that the laddies of South Wales ought to begin tunnelling away post-haste. And tunnel they did, straight under no man's land, beneath trenches and craters and barbed wire and bulwarks until they were close enough to the Germans to hear them playing poker at bedtime in the bunkers above, while they quietly hurried box upon box of TNT and dynamite through the mine and set them down right underneath those same poker-playing Germanic fannies. On 1 July, right as Major Owen Wilkins kicked a football into no man's land and exhorted Harry Moss and Tommy and Kevin and John and other Tommy and the rest of his boys to bring that ball back here straight away. The whistle sounded and the Brits charged over the sandbags and the whole underground shebang beneath the German fannies went kaboom. The explosion cast burning bodies, an entire deck of playing cards, assorted limbs, sundry personal effects, barbed wire sandbags and infinite duckboard splinters 100 yards up into the sky, then rained them back down onto the German trenches. The mine explosion absolutely killed plenty of Germans, and it briefly opened up the line to a bold British cavalry charge. Unfortunately, once they seized the detonated section of the trenches and pressed onward, their flanks became exposed. The entire 4th British Cavalry Regiment, in the fight on horseback for the first time since the war began, got ahead of itself in their glorious and lusty charge and found themselves cut off and machine-gunned to near the last man. The last horse as well, sadly. A terribly unfortunate ending to a brilliant beginning was the general consensus at GHQ. Hear, hear. As the Battle of the Somme played out, it stood as a microcosm of the whole show, piss-poor leadership and multitudinous, pointlessly dead men. But the mines, the mines had left a lasting impression on both sides. So, once German High Command had been briefed on the British mining operation, Rupert was handed a new mission and purpose, quite at odds with his Quaker upbringing, but quite in line with his digging skill set. Fortunately for Rupert Fuchs' conscience, by that point, he had lost almost all perspective on what might be right 
or what might be wrong. Just as the Americans would soon be hollering, Remember the Lusitania! Rupert had seen so many of his fellows killed that it mattered little what he was tasked to do. He could find justification for good old tit-for-tat vengeance without looking far at all. Remember Tuesday morning would have done the trick to spur him into the fight. Quaker meeting house, be damned. And so, with a mission to undermine and detonate the British trenches set before him, Rupert and his sappers began to do what they did best. They began to dig. The first mine they dug was a doozy, 100 yards long, straight as an arrow, right beneath the British front-line trenches. Not to be outdone by the Brits, they filled it with one ton of TNT, plus enough mustard gas to blister the skin and burn the throats of a thousand men. And oh boy, when that candle was lit, it sure did the trick. Rupert and his sappers watched it go, sending a massive fist of earth sky high. Then the thick, yellowy-brown mustard gas began to settle into the British trenches and do its throttling, blistery work. And that completely one-upped the British in the mining kaboom game. To top it off, 1,000 German shock troops in gas masks charged across no man's land into the breach. They slaughtered the stunned survivors, and just like their eager British cavalry counterparts, they outran their flanks. Perhaps it is simply human nature to overreach. They realized quite quickly that a British artillery battery was looking down on them from a hilltop to their left, as the Germans valiantly held the fresh, bloody ground they had captured. They sent Rupert and his boys forward to dig in and entrench them, but they found themselves the subject of merciless shelling that they could not counter. Once more than half their number had been killed, the lieutenant colonel in charge, Wilhelm Friesen, regretfully pulled his depleted ranks back to their original position. The retreat cost him any shot at immediate promotion, but he salved that with the knowledge that he had gotten only 527 of his men killed instead of a nice round 1,000. Small blessings. Small blessings. The battle left Rupert and his men a bit shell-shocked. As they had moved forward to help the assault troops dig in, they witnessed the results of their mining firsthand. The dead and dying British, burned and pustulantly blistered, were a horror show to see. And even though he had tried hard to remember last Tuesday, it was difficult to stomach that he might have been the cause of all that horror. The next mine they dug gave Rupert night terrors for the rest of his life. They had been tunneling away for a month and were three quarters of the way across to the British lines when it happened. He had already sent the rest of the men back to get breakfast and was inspecting the timber support girders and beams when he heard it. It was faint, but not distant. He had to wait a long 30-second count to confirm his fear. It was definitely the sound of a pick striking clay, followed by the scraping of a trench spade removing debris. Fifteen feet below the surface, the British sappers were digging right next to them in the opposite direction. Their mine could not be more than ten feet away. Rupert ducked his head and sprinted back through his tunnel to the German lines. 
when he reported to Lieutenant Colonel Friesen what he had heard and surmised the cause of it, there was some debate over what ought to be done. To blow the tunnel and collapse the British mine seemed a waste of a month's work, and Herr Lieutenant Colonel Friesen wanted more than a handful of dead British miners. He desperately needed body counts and blood to make up for all the men he had lost in the last go-round. So he came up with what he thought was Ein wirklich ausgezeichnetes Schema. His truly excellent scheme was to have Rupert and his men wrap their picks and shovels in cloth to muffle the noise of their digging so they would not give themselves away and risk the Brits preemptively blowing the mine and burying Rupert and his diggers. What Herr Lieutenant Colonel wanted to do was finish Rupert's mine in secret, fill it with explosives, then make a sharp right turn and capture the British mine. Before blowing the mine to high heaven, they would raid the British trenches with an elite platoon of shock troops. Then, when the British reinforcements arrived, the shock troops would melt away back across no man's land and the mine would be detonated. This was a very clever plan, but it did not make Rupert Fuchs a happy man. He was a digger. His satisfaction was in a job well done. He also remained a Quaker at heart. Body counts and blood were not things he thought about while he and his men broke their backs digging mines. Yet all the same, he was a proud German. Rupert had a job to do, and so he did it, joyously or no. The work was stressful. Captain Paul Becker and his crack team of assault troops served as security. While Rupert and his men scratched at the earth, one of the assaulters would listen with his stethoscope for the sounds of British miners at work, while three other troopers were there to provide protection. Captain Becker's men were killers of the First Order, ready for anything, as top-notch at their jobs as Rupert and his diggers were at theirs. Knowing how cramped the conditions would be if they had to fight a pitched battle in the tunnel, they cut the stocks off their rifles and hacksawed the barrels down to six inches. The rifles looked like long, pirate flintlock pistols. The recoil, when fired, was brutal, and they lacked any accuracy at distance. But if they faced the British in the underground tunnels, they would have a serious firepower advantage. It took another four weeks of digging, but finally, they were beneath the British lines. While Becker's men prepared for the raid, Rupert's boys hauled tons of ammonal explosive into the tip of the mine, praying each step of the way that this was not the moment that the British discovered them and tried to blow their mine. Then it was done. At sunset, an exhausted Rupert and his two best diggers sat underground next to Paul Becker's crack assault team. When Corporal Thomas Larson put down the stethoscope, and gave the signal that the British had stopped digging for the night. Rupert and his men ploughed their shovels into the side of the tunnel. An hour of digging passed before the earth finally gave way, opening up a man-sized hole into the pristine cavern that Rupert's British counterparts were constructing. Rupert was the first one through. He was duly impressed, and more than a little bit envious. The workmanship was excellent. As good, perhaps better, than anything Rupert had accomplished as a digger. The support beams were perfectly square. 
incandescent bulbs were strong the length of it. To Rupert's engineer's brain, in the abstract, it was a thing of beauty. As the assault troops streamed past him, toward the British trenches, he was struck by the desire to cry out, to warn his fellow tunnel craftsmen that death was coming for them with lead bullets and steel bayonets. But he did not. Corporal Thomas Larson and Captain Becker disappeared with their band of killers into the British trenches. Rupert did not hear anything at first. Becker's men dispatched the sleeping British miners silently with trench daggers and bayonets. A few long, silent minutes passed before gunfire began. Rupert and his men kept their heads down as they turned and raced back through their tunnel to the German lines. They emerged from the tunnel and went to the front of the German trench. Rupert stood on tiptoe on the fire step and listened to the distant battle rage for twenty minutes. When it hit the twenty-minute mark precisely, a flare went up from the British trenches and the sounds of fighting slowly petered out. A minute later, the assault team, sweat-soaked, bloody, elated, came streaming back across no man's land. Led by Paul Becker, they ran through a gap in the barbed wire that Rupert and his sabbats had cut for them and piled into the trenches to watch the show. Rupert led his team out to restring the barbed wire. It took five minutes. As they came back over the sandbags, he saw the entire front-line company had come out to witness the detonation of the mine. It was a standing-room-only show, and Rupert's work was the cause. The assault team had been brutally successful. The British diggers had been unarmed, so killing them had been a fish-in-a-barrel affair. When they reached the trenches themselves, the sentries had all been caught unawares, too focused on what might come through the dark of no man's land before them, to hear what had snuck in behind them. When the first gunshots sounded, the British riflemen that responded were half asleep. They paid a steep price for their slumber. When Corporal Larson fired the retreat flare, the British reinforcements had just begun to arrive, aiming to recapture the sector. Those same reinforcements were still manning the British trenches when the ammonium nitrate was triggered. Cheers went up from the German line as the massive explosion blew the British trenches to bits, but it sent a chill down Rupert's spine. Something tiny, deep inside him, got blown to smithereens alongside the British miners. Later, official British casualty lists set the number of dead and wounded at 347. Lieutenant Colonel Friesen scratched that and estimated it closer to 500. It was, after all, the job of lieutenant colonels of all nations to overestimate their killing power and prestige. And rounding up was always more satisfying than rounding down. How else could one hope to ever advance high enough to reach the brass ring? Honesty was decidedly not the best policy. In the aftermath, Rupert received enough slaps on his back from his fellows to leave a light bruising that would last several weeks. He went back to his bunker and lay in the dark with painful stomach cramps the whole of the night. The next morning, the pain in his belly was so bad 
that Lieutenant Colonel Friesen regretfully sent him to the rear for a stretch of rest and recovery. Unfortunately, the time off accomplished neither objective. The bruises on his back had disappeared by the time they shipped him back to the front, but the memory of the act that caused the celebratory backslapping did not dim a bit. All Rupert saw when he shut his eyes were the imaginary, smiling faces of British miners carving out the immaculate mine that had sealed their fate. Rupert's company had shifted north and had already been digging a new mine for a week. When Rupert rejoined them, he was not happy at all with the quality of the workmanship, so he gave his subordinates a stern talking to. They were all greatly ashamed when Rupert went in himself and got all the beams and girders properly square. Then he requisitioned a long string of incandescent bulbs attached to a diesel generator. The grubby, parsimonious supply sergeant was loath to give up the generator, but a coldly angry Sergeant Rupert Fuchs went to Lieutenant Colonel Friesen and demanded it be given over to him. Lieutenant Colonel Friesen was bemused at the show by the little fellow, but all the same he sent word, and the chastened supply sergeant signed away the generator, 50 gallons of diesel fuel, and 500 feet of wire and bulbs. Rupert strung the bulbs overhead in the new mine, and once the jenny was up and running, they cast their warm yellow glow down into the gloom. It was much more comfortable to dig without the stench of kerosene burning in lanterns, and much more pleasant and civilized as well. He understood why his British counterpart decided to light his mine in that way, and felt disappointed that he had not thought of it, if not first, at the same time. It's never too late to learn, he said aloud, to no one in particular. The work continued in this fashion for a month. Rupert was stringing the latest bulb to the newest roof timber when he heard it. The not-too-distant sound of picks and shovels striking clay, and the rumble of British voices merrily digging away. Rupert sat back on his heels and wept silently for five minutes. Lieutenant Colonel Friesen was overjoyed. How much luck! could one prospective colonel have? He ordered a repeat of the last strategy, dig past them silently, place the explosives, cut across and raid their trenches. 500 kills, give or take a few, most likely give, in one outing, would make Friesen a war hero of note and completely erase the 527 troops he lost in that first go-round of mining. A reluctant Rupert, went back to work alongside Corporal Larson and his stethoscope. The perfect beams, the square girders, and the excellent lighting no longer brought Rupert any satisfaction. All he imagined as they ploughed ahead was an identical, perfect tunnel to his right that men precisely like him were constructing. They finished the tunnel on the morning of Good Friday, then spent the day loading in explosives, and this time, in a bid to one-up their previous assault, one ton of man-killing phosgene chlorine gas. As the sun set, Rupert and his two best diggers, Hans Deal and Tedrick Christensen, commenced their digging with Captain Paul Becker's assault team stacked in behind them, ready for battle. Perhaps Rupert was not paying close enough attention, 
He was trying to focus on getting the job done, but he kept getting distracted as he imagined the coming bloody results of his action. Or maybe Corporal Thomas Larson was not paying close enough attention to his stethoscope as he replayed the letter in his head he had received from home about the birth of the beautiful baby boy that his bride, lovely chubby Gertrude, had christened Johannes Paul Larson. Either way, they all paid the price. Some keen fellow in the British trenches must have heard them digging. At around 11.30pm on Good Friday, just as they were about to tap into the British mine, 100 pounds of TNT, which the British sappers had stealthily shuttled into their own tunnel, was triggered. It collapsed both mines almost entirely. When Rupert came back to consciousness, he was in a hell of his own making. Apparently the line to the generator had not been cut, as the handful of bulbs still visible were quietly buzzing away with electrical current. He saw that the closest beams and girders he had so carefully constructed and squared were still standing, in testament to his craftsmanship and skill. Unfortunately, more than half of the assault platoon had been killed and instantly interred by the explosion in the neighboring mine, and the exit way behind them was blocked by tons upon tons of dirt. Here, in the tip of the mine, Rupert Fuchs and Hans Deal, Tedrick Christensen, Corporal Thomas Larson, Captain Paul Becker, and the surviving dozen of his crack assault team were trapped, buried alive under twenty feet of clay and earth next to five tons of unexploded ammonium nitrate and an even ton of phosgene chlorine gas. Their horror show was just beginning.